Well, we have a, an opportunity tonight to do what I really enjoy uh, doing, and that is question and answer time. This is very unique for us. Uh, normally on a Sunday night, just like we do on Sunday morning, we go through an exposition of Scripture. Uh, we are normally going through the book of Psalms, and uh, we are going to be doing that on the evening of the 10th. I'll be gone next Lord's Day both morning and evening, and uh, as I said this morning, Jim Hines and Jason Spadaro will be preaching uh, next Sunday, and so on the 10th, uh, we'll be going back to our exposition, and I'm really in the process of enjoying that study because that will be Psalm 32, which is one of the great penitential psalms of David where he expresses his repentance to the Lord and his confession of sin, and so that is one of the most famous psalms in all the Psalter. And so uh, I'm going to be uh, speaking on Psalm 32 when we return. And so uh, we look forward to that on that particular Sunday night. But tonight we have the opportunity to have you ask Bible questions. And uh, if I have the answer, I'll give it to you. If I don't, I'll ask Brent Carlson. And he will give us all the answers to uh, any questions that I don't know. All right? All right, so first question. Who wants to ask the first question? I see that hand. <laughs> Hi, Pastor. Hi, Russ. Uh, I've had something on my mind for a number of years. And uh, it is that I was baptized as a child. And uh, here in the last several years, it's bothered me because I do not think I was regenerated when I was baptized. My buddy Keith says in order to validate it, I have to go to the River Jordan, and be baptized. <laughs> but uh, I can't afford that. So here's what uh, Legionnaire has to say about this matter. Um, um, Paul says that our baptism buries us with Christ. Admittedly, we cannot describe exactly how this happens. We cannot be united to Christ apart, apart from personally trusting in Jesus. So baptism in itself cannot unite us to Christ. Whether we are immersed, sprinkled, dipped, or receive a pouring, we come under water, are buried in baptism. What is your... What are your thoughts on that, Pastor? Great question. Question is probably two or threefold, actually, uh, as you framed it. Maybe the first part of the question, as I repeat it, is if someone is baptized early on, especially as an infant, uh, the question is, uh, for the Christian, is that a valid baptism? Okay, so that's one question. The next question is, does baptism itself have something that is tantamount, not necessarily for regeneration, but is it tantamount to the concept of a salvation and a baptism that comes 
upon the heels of one another. And then thirdly, the question would be, is there any real difference or level of importance to the mode of baptism? Because you mentioned, of course, the idea of sprinkling, uh, immersion, dipping, uh, other kinds of modes of, of baptism. So I would, I would answer in the following. The first question, at least for me, notwithstanding my beloved Presbyterian brothers, of which Ligonier Ministries, of course, uh, they are part and parcel of the Presbyterian movement of our day, including our dear brother, R.C. Sproul. They, of course, would believe that in the Old Testament, there was a rite, R-I-T-E, a Old Testament rite commanded by God to Abraham first and then his posterity, the Jews, to be circumcised. Presbyterians particularly, but not limited to them, but since we're talking about these brothers and sisters, Presbyterians believe that in the New Testament, you have a counterpart rite, R-I-T-E, that corresponds to Old Testament circumcision, and that is baptism. And I'll give you one place. You can go in your Bibles to Colossians, where they often go to speak of this counterpart, this idea that baptism replaces circumcision. Baptism in the New Testament replaces circumcision or fulfills it or is the New Testament counterpart to baptism in the Old Covenant. And they basically want to take us to a place where we understand in Colossians chapter 2 this parallel between Old Covenant baptism, which would have been, I mean, uh, Old Testament circumcision, which of course occurred with Jewish children, Jewish boys on the eighth day, right? And then, of course, in the New Covenant era, in the age of Christ, baptism is of course something that occurred in the life of the church. The question is when? Well, here's, for instance, where they might go to see circumcision and baptism as two rites that are interconnected at least in some sense. Notice what, they, what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. In Him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12. Having been buried with Him, in baptism, that's buried with Christ, in baptism, and notice it shifts from the circumcision of Christ to baptism with Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All right, here's what they say. 
The Presbyterians, using them as an example, would say that because circumcision was a commanded matter of obedience, that God commanded Abraham and therefore his posterity, that that, of course, being a Jewish rite, then gives way in the New Covenant era because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, so that circumcision is now done away with in favor of baptism. And they say, do you see the parallels there? Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. They would say that physical rite of of circumcision gave way to the, as it were, circumcision of Christ putting off the body of the flesh. You were saved. You were converted. And then they say, notice what immediately happens in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. And they say, because of such a close link between circumcision and baptism, you have Paul shifting to the New Testament rite. And so what they would say is that if an eight year eight day old son of the faith was to be circumcised, then babies are to be baptized. Do you see the connection? If you do, I don't. Because in Colossians chapter 2, he's using even the idea of circumcision here in a spiritual sense. Not in the sense of a literal circumcision that occurred at eight days old of a Jewish child. Now, that's of course where you can go from literal to spiritual by the idea of saying it must be a circumcision made without hands, but I don't see the connection between circumcision in verse 11 and baptism in verse 12 as perfect parallels. I don't see the idea of a circumcision in the Old Covenant giving way to a baptism of an infant in the New Covenant. Here's my other answer. I don't see any place in the entire New Testament, whether theologically or textually, from the biblical text themselves, I don't see any passage in the entire New Testament that ever talks about the baptism of an infant. They say, oh, but wait a minute. They have what are called household baptisms in the book of Acts. All right, so let's turn to one. Let's turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. There, of course, is where you have the account of the Philippian jailer who was converted. And notice what it is said there. I'm just going to give you one example here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. You remember in Acts 16.25, after midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In other words, they didn't run after all those doors were opened up. They were right there. They were going to stay there. And Paul was going to commence 
to talk with this Philippian jailer about the gospel. And conceivably, preferably, he was more concerned about the salvation of this jailer than he was with his own escape, right? So he communicates the gospel to him, and he says, verse 31, and they said, that's Paul and Silas, their, their company, their band, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, what our infant baptizing brothers and sisters would say is, ah, do you see there? It says... Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So there's a household baptism right there. That's what they would say. They would further go on to say that there are other places in the book of Acts where the same thing is addressed. But I want you to notice something. First of all, it's an argument from silence that says that there were infants in his household. Right? That's an argument from silence. It's not there. It doesn't say that. And I want you to see what it does say very explicitly. Notice when Paul and Silas give the gospel call to this Philippian jailer, and it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Now, what does that explicitly tell us? that everyone in the house could audibly hear Paul speaking the gospel word, right? It, it, it would be incongruous to say that there was an infant who was converted, who was saved, and then who was baptized as an infant in this moment when it appears from the very testimony of Scripture that everyone in that household had the, the adult understanding, whether they were a young adult or a, a middle-aged person, or an older person. Let's say it was young adult children. Let's say it was the Philippian jailer and his wife. Let's say there were older persons, maybe even servants, maybe even uh, grandmothers and grandfathers, whoever was in this household. It was very clear that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all, it says, who were in the house. So at, on the face of it, when it says that they were baptized, he and all of his household... It makes it sound potentially like there were infant baptisms being done there. The problem is no infant could have heard that word of the gospel because, of course, as infants, they are not able to understand the gospel as infants. Especially in current infant baptisms in local churches because they are very tiny babies who understand nothing of what's going on, right? So to answer your first question... If, in fact, someone was, was baptized as an infant, I think that's the reverse of what the New Testament calls for. You read through the book of Acts, and you will find consistently, without failure, that when someone was baptized, it was because they had just heard the gospel, they were old enough to, to hear the gospel, to understand the gospel, to respond to the gospel, 
and then they were baptized, not the reverse. There's no such thing in the New Testament as a baptism first and then a regeneration and a conversion of someone later. There's simply no mention of it. So the idea of someone being baptized as an infant and then later experiencing regeneration and then conversion and their baptism occurred when they were an infant is unknown to the New Testament. It's just simply not there. You say, well, where did it come from? Well, remember, when the Reformers broke from Rome, Rome had the practice of infant baptism, right? That's the first of their seven sacraments. We might be able to say it like this. We just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and the church, that is, some within the church, even the Protestant church, need more reforming. Because that infant baptism was simply a carryover from the days that the Reformers were breaking away from Rome as Protestants. And so the Reformation is not over. The Reformation still needs to occur, especially as it relates to infant baptism. It needs to be done away with, and it needs to be a baptism after someone's conversion, because that's the New Testament pattern. So what I would say to anybody is... If someone were baptized either as an infant or they were baptized, like you mentioned, Russ, prior to your regeneration, and it sometimes it's difficult because someone might say something like this, well, I thought I was a Christian. I professed faith in Christ, not, not as an infant, of course, but, but as a young person, uh, maybe someone who's you know, seven or eight years old or 11 or 12 or something like that. And they said, you know, I, my parents prayed with me. I prayed to receive Christ with my parent, and I turned around, just as the Scripture says, and I was baptized. But it was several years later, and often you'll hear these testimonies in the waters of baptism when they're rebaptized. Well, I went to college, or uh, I got married, and man, my eyes were, were made wide open with the challenges of life, and we had children, and all of a sudden I was sort of examining my life all over again, and I realized, you know what? I'm saved now. I wasn't saved back then. And they'll often come to me as a pastor and say, you know, I don't think I was genuinely a Christian. Do I need to be rebaptized? And here's my pastoral answer. If you have a question about it, then be rebaptized. Because there's not a problem with a rebaptism if someone has the nagging, gnawing question, was I really saved way back when? And if they have a question about it, it may very well be because the conscience of a person is being pricked and they're saying, I think I need to be rebaptized. And I would say to them, well, then by all means, be rebaptized. Definitely. And I think that's the better idea than sort of uh, pushing the conscience to the side and say, well, I was infant baptized and I think that's good enough for me. Or I was baptized when I was eight but I'm not sure about it, but, but I'm just going to go ahead and uh, I'm just going to sort of suppress my conscience. I would tend to say, if you've got any questions at all, if you've got any doubts at all, be rebaptized and settle the matter for once and for all. Okay? Yes, sir. Other questions? Hello. 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 I'm wondering... Um, What's your name? Oh, my name's Max. Hi, Max. Um, I, I haven't read all of the Bible yet, so I'd, I'd be eager to get advice of where to start. Um, and what I'm thinking is, 
it's easy to be attracted to religion for me when I'm uh, when I need something to lean on. My question is, if if I become successful, how do I stay on a good path and not um, turn to sin? Mm. Very good question. Now, I assume, Max, that you mean when I become successful, you mean when I'm growing spiritually? Or are you talking about I, I need to understand the gospel or the good news first and then determine how to grow from that point on? Um, I think I meant financial success. Uh, okay. It's easier to sin if you have the money to do it. Okay. And so that's, that's what my question was based okay. on. Okay. All right. Great question. Whether it's uh, financial success, whether it is material success, whether it's um, success with um, those who would see me as successful, in other words, you know, some level of prov- uh, prominence, some level of prestige, whatever it is, especially for, for a younger person, I would say that the Bible makes it very, very clear, whether it's financial or otherwise, that the only person who's successful or who is gaining in success is a person who's following the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why don't we turn to Matthew chapter 22, because I think that gives us a good word about success. Matthew chapter 22. This is is a great text for all of us to be reminded of. I know this is This is very, very familiar territory for you, but Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced, speaking about Jesus, the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer. Now, that's that's an area of success in our culture, right? A lawyer. Now, let's not have any lawyer jokes, right? It's, it's, It's a successful position. In fact, I heard it was so cold the other day in Chicago that there was an attorney who had his hand even in his own pocket. But anyway, (laughs) and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Why do I bring that passage up to answer your question? Well, you could think of success in a myriad of ways. Financial, um, popularity, um, even those who are pursuing, uh, especially a, a single female, uh, a relationship because they, they put so much stock in the idea if I get that, that husband and I'll have those children and I'll have the White House and the picket fence and, and I'll be very, very happy. So whatever success we're talking about, Jesus is telling everyone, including this lawyer, that if you boil down the idea of pleasing God to just two commands, it would be loving the Lord your God with all your heart mind, soul, and strength. One of the other Gospels adds the other attribute there to have four, soul, mind, strength, and uh, heart. And then a second that's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice what he says, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, this is a tremendous summing up 
of a succinct statement that says, this is true success. Now, of course, somebody's going to immediately say, well, but how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? How can you do that perfectly? And the answer to that is, that's one of those catch-you phrases where Jesus is trying to say to them, oh, by the way, even though that's true, you're a lawyer, you, like the other religious leaders, are assuming that you already do that, but you should be caught up short, as should everybody, that if you violate that law of loving the Lord your God in this way, in a supreme way, and your neighbor as yourself, even if you've done one thing wrong, you're guilty of all, right? You violated the whole law of God. It's the same thing that he told the religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, unless your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter heaven. Well, I mean, they were the most righteous guys of the day, right? I mean, they were the ones parading around with their robes, and they were praying on the street corner, and they were doing their alms, and they were, they were tithing, you know, mint, anise, and cumin. They were doing all kinds of things outwardly. And he was catching these religious leaders up short by saying that true obedience to God, true success, true prosperity is not just trying to crank it out on the outside, but to live internally knowing that you are endeavoring to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. To which we all say, but I've already violated that. In fact, I violated that multiple times. A day. Right? He's, he's seeking a different answer. And the answer that he seeks is this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. And he gets right to the heart of the matter. Even in terms of someone who would worry about even the smallest things. There might be some people who aren't worried about you know, grabbing financial success or uh, business success or, or marital success. They're just trying to get along. They're just trying to feed themselves or maybe their families. And in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about this and he even challenges those to whom he was preaching not to be anxious. And here's what he says. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now stop there. So whether we're talking about success in the business world, financially or otherwise, or whether we're talking about just hanging on and not being anxious. Where's my food going to come from? Where's my clothing going to come from? Where's my shelter going to come from? He says, don't be anxious. Look at at these lilies of the field. 
Your, your father feeds them. And he's using the argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at, look at the field of these lilies. They didn't do anything to look as gorgeous as they look. Your heavenly father takes care of them. And if he takes care of them, don't you think he knows how to take care of you? In other words, if anyone is concerned about making it big or being successful or having the world's satisfaction, they're probably barking up the wrong tree. What he's really, really saying is that if you are going to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, then by all means, if you try to fulfill the greater aspects of the law, God will assuredly give you all that you need to live this life. And you'll be satisfied and content. I stopped at verse 31. Therefore, Matthew 6, 31, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And here's the most wonderful verse regarding this whole matter of anxiousness. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. That's tantamount to saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. What are the these things? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And all these things will be added to you. All the things that I crave, all the things that I'd like to have, all the good stuff, all the success, even from my righteous laboring, is still not as important as loving God with all my, all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving my neighbor as myself, and not being anxious, but seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things, my clothing, my food, my shelter, all of these things will be added to me. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to be anxious about it. I can trust God because I love Him. He's my heavenly Father. He doesn't want to give me a stone when I ask for bread. He will take care of me. But what I must do in His presence and for His glory is to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And when I do that, He'll take care of every brand of success, whatever it looks like. He'll look at me in the business world, and if I'm busy taking the ladder of success, and I'm climbing up everybody else on their head and shoulders so that I can get to the top of the ladder, I may find myself at some point up that ladder of success only to find that when I get to the top, the ladder has been leaning against the wrong wall all the time. Because it's not what I'm to do. I'm to love God. I'm to serve my brothers and sisters in such a way that God will be concerned with all that the success will ultimately look like. And then I can be satisfied. Does that help? All right. Next question. Tell me about Melchizedek. Oh, man. Ron Gerber is asking about Melchizedek. Let's close in prayer. All right, turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. 
I want to show you a place in the book of Hebrews that talks about Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7. And I want to show you something very interesting about this very shadowy figure of Melchizedek. Of course, he's the king of Salem. All right? And you might be able to make a connection that if he's the king of Salem, that that might be that he was the king of a place that Salem is a shorthand version of Jerusalem. Okay? So if, in fact, this shadowy figure of Melchizedek, who was paid tithes in the Old Testament by whom? Abraham. Okay? So even Abraham recognized the superiority of whoever this king was, right? We find out from the writer to Hebrews a little bit more about this figure in verse 11 of Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessity a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal, a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You say, well, I just followed along with your reading and I'm no closer to understanding who this guy is. All right. Well, somehow and in some way, Melchizedek is being used by the writer to Hebrews as a comparison to Jesus. All right? We'll have to find out exactly how and in what way. We'll look back at chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, that's the word tithe, a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's Melchizedek. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Because the front part of his name means king, and Salem means peace. All right? He is without father, now this is fascinating, He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, I want you to notice something. In Hebrews chapter 7, when it says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, 
he continues a priest forever. Notice it doesn't say the reverse. It doesn't say that Jesus resembles Melchizedek. Now that's important. You could say it like this. Even if I don't know anything else other than what this is telling me or what the Old Testament is depicting when he first comes on the scene, if I don't know anything else about Melchizedek, because admittedly he's a kind of shadowy figure, here's what I do know. He was at least, according to the writer to Hebrews, raised up so that in chapter 7 he could be seen as one who resembles the Son of God because he remains a priest forever. So if you want to say it like this, Jesus doesn't resemble Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. And so maybe he was raised up, even though he's a bit of a shadowy figure, he was raised up so that ultimately, even though he starts in that Abrahamic time, he comes all the way in this New Testament error to be seen as a person who resembles the Son of God. And how does he resemble the Son of God? Look back at verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, speaking of Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's the Old Testament law. For the law made nothing perfect. What he's saying is this, that the Old Testament law was given in such a way that it was designed ultimately to be outmoded and replaced. It was weak and it was useless. Not in and of itself, but its purpose was not to show anybody perfect, but to actually show what sinners really are and look like. Because you and I, as those who are born into this world, are trying to keep the law. And when we fail to do so, it shows us the sinner that we really are. And yet, God's promise was to fulfill in the perfect one, Jesus Christ, the only one who could successfully live out the entire dictates of the law of God, the only one who wasn't imperfect like us, but perfect. He, on the other hand, according to verse 19, is a better hope through which we draw near to God. I could never draw near to God and ever expect to be to be accepted by Him if I tried to fulfill all of the Old Testament law. Right? I can never draw near to God. And the one person who was perfectly fulfilling all of the dictates of the Old Testament law, He was the one whom God accepted so that He, in His vicarious substitutionary sacrifice, allowed me, through His death on my behalf, to go right to the throne room of God, and draw near to the Father. And so, Melchizedek has been set up, beginning in the Old Testament era, and all the way through to what the writer to Hebrews says about him, that he was a picture all along of the resemblance of the one who was ultimately the great high priest, who was able to fulfill even what no one else would be able to do, especially all of the Aaronic priesthood. All of the priests from Aaron to even those who would call themselves up to the second temple of Herod, all of these priests 
they ultimately, because they were sinners themselves, could never attain to the, to the status of a great high priest. And Jesus attained to that status because of His perfect life. Notice what kind of life is being described there in verse 16. He has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but, here's Jesus, by the power of an indestructible life. He couldn't die and be held in the pangs of death. Now, he died, and he was buried in that tomb for three days, but the tomb couldn't hold him. Every other priest who served his purpose in that life as a priest, he died. And he's still in that tomb to this day. His body is still there. The only priest who died, but he could not be held by the pangs of death because he has an indestructible life, Melchizedek resembles him. That's who he is. Anybody clearer on that? There's a lot more to say, but you can see it this way. When you think of Melchizedek, don't think about Jesus resembling him. Think about Melchizedek resembling Jesus. And when you've got that order right, Melchizedek is to be correctly understood. He was around. He was this guy who didn't seem to have a genealogy. He didn't seem to have a mother and a father. He seemed to be this shadowy figure of whom even Abraham looked up to. Well, I should say so because he was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he resembled the Son of God, and Jesus, through his indestructible life, shows that he's greater than anyone, and even Melchizedek is a bit of a faint type who resembles the Son of God. Okay? Next question. And I thought that that was an easy question from Ron Gerber. Here comes the very difficult question. Pastor, the world is full of libraries at universities and professors that are very smart. And those libraries are full of the wisdom of men before us, cherished wisdom, thoughts, ideas. When I hear you talk, and you, I've been to these questions and answers several times now. I've been, you know, been around a little bit, and I've been watching you. I never see you, or rarely ever see you, refer to any other book or work or writer than this right here. Mm -hmm. You might refer to something in passing occasionally from somebody else, but the vast majority, overwhelming majority of everything you tell us and say to us always comes from that book. Why? Well, I think it's the book of books. I think there are tremendous helps with books that also attempt to help us clarify what this book means. And I have no problem quoting from those books because they help us clarify what this book is to be rightly interpreted as being. I think my challenge is that I've only got a limited amount of time, a limited amount of effort, and I think with the way my mind tracks I tend to believe that my life is ebbing out of my body more quickly than more slowly. And it gives me a sense of urgency. 
And I do see people at times putting a lot of their time and effort into what look like very worthy pursuits. Uh, It could be entertainment. It could be world travel. It could be seeing the sights and sounds that are marvelous and stunning. It could be things that hold levels of value as far as you know, the world is concerned. And I don't speak against people who are doing those things because if they have time and, and opportunity, uh, some of those things are very, very wonderful to ponder, to think through, to see, to experience. I don't presume, especially on my budget, that I'm ever going to be a world traveler. I'm ever going to be able to see all the great, you know, uh, sights of the world, all the you know wonders of the world. I seem to be in God's economy, one of those guys that um, sort of has a bit of a one-track mind. And it seems to me that my kingdom contribution is related more to both my desire and the fulfillment of that desire to clarify for people what Scripture means by what it says. And I find myself even fighting against the idea of reading fiction. I don't think there's anything wrong with reading fiction. I really don't. Um, Maybe it's a percentage matter of how much fiction do I read versus nonfiction. But I tend to, in my mind, and, and maybe this is just the way it works for me in God's providence, that, for instance, when I hear... Of a, of a great book that clarifies a particular doctrine, a particular teaching, uh, and even practical Christian help for, for men and women, I tend to gravitate to a, to a resource like that. Uh, whether it's a book, whether it's a blog, whether it's a podcast, whatever it may be, but particularly books, because words on, you know, black words on white pages are frozen in time. And I can read and reread those paragraphs so that I'm really trying to understand what the writer is saying. I mean, I spent this Thanksgiving season, particularly uh, much of Thursday, uh, Friday, and Saturday, um, sort of um, fighting even sometimes the, uh, the, the, the spirit of spending a lot of time with a lot of people, which I enjoy doing. But whenever I can steal away moments where I've got a book in my hand and I'm trying to study the nub of an issue because I think it's either coming up or I think it's important or I think it's, it's something that's going to help somebody. I, I tend to read nonfiction material. I tend to read it about how to clarify what Scripture says. And it just seems that that's my contribution to the kingdom. It could be that other people are, are thinking about other things and pursuing other things, and I don't disparage them. I don't, I don't talk negatively about them. I don't assume they're wasting time. It just seems to me that I've got this, this, this one thing I do mentality that puts me on the path that makes the greatest contribution that I could personally make for people's lives. I, I, I'm amazed at how many people do talk to me send me emails, call me on the phone. When I'm traveling, they come up, they talk, they ask questions like this. They, 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 they say, well, what about this passage and, and what does this mean? And I find myself in a, in a sea 
of uncertainty until I can answer those questions. Well, then it, then it motivates me to go to those resources and to say, here's a good explanation of what that means. And, and it seems as though that's the lane that God has put me in that keeps me out of other lanes, including doing a lot of other things in my life. Now, does that mean I'm pretty boring? Uh, yeah, probably. Does that mean I don't get out much? Yeah, probably. I mean, our kids laugh at us most of the time because Beth tends to be that same way. And so our idea of, of fun is that she's sitting at her desk at home and I'm sitting on the couch at home and she's reading and I'm reading. And, and she will occasionally tell me what she's reading and why it's important and I will tell her what I'm reading and why it's important. And that makes us like two of the most boring people around socially. But it seems as though it's what God has called us to. And so with that, it, it, like for instance, I mean, I've been asked a few times in my life the Melchizedekian question, right? Well, I'd better know what I'm talking about. And if I don't know what I'm talking about, then it's because I haven't worked hard enough to try to find out the answers to those questions. And I can't find the answer to that by watching for the 183rd time a Christmas special that may be important and it may be encouraging for somebody and it may be the wonderful acting, but it seems to me that my time is better spent answering that question and maybe I'll watch that movie once, right? So that's the best I can do. Sorry. Other questions? I should stand up. See, since I mentioned you before, that means you're going to ask me such a lobbed softball question that's so easy that if I say I don't know the, know the answer, you're going to answer it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of Russ. He stood up and it impressed me. I, um, <laughs> I, I, you you got to know, if you don't know Lance and, and, and Wes, the history, well, the books that Lance has, <laughs> if you've seen his library, it is like over 10,000 books. In his library. Go drive by his home if his garage door is open. <laughs> Unbelievable. And what, what you're saying is a mind blower, too. Because if you get into the studies that you get, like Tuesday or Thursday and those types, he's always reading different types of books. And that seems to what makes a man. But, but that's an excellent comment. And, and bless your soul, Wes, that you would answer <laughs> such a beautiful question. Ask one. Mine, I prepared mine for Wes to follow Wes. And it, oh, is, and it is simply this. <laughs> what is your favorite passage in Revelation? That is so easy. <laughs> that is so easy. Turn in the book of Revelation. Because if we're talking about reading, if we're talking about studying... Then Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. No, this is it. What is my favorite passage in the book of Revelation? Here it is. If I cheated a little bit, I'd, I'd include verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then this, verse 3, here it is. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I think that it's easy to say for a guy who likes to read that to read the book of Revelation means that I'm going to be blessed if I keep what is written in it. And that sense of urgency is right there, then the time is near. I mean, I've thought about this a thousand times, that if my life ended tomorrow, would I have been satisfied with all that I was supposed to know and understand about Scripture? And I guess it just keeps me on that path of saying, I'm, I'm in a role, I'm in a vocation, I'm in a ministry, I'm in a life that God has assigned that says, if you're going to be up front, if you're going to speak, if you're going to answer questions, or if you're going to do it privately or in counseling, then you need to read and heed and understand and apply for the time is near. All right? Other questions? Yes. Um, My question is regarding... Tongues, speaking in tongues. Oh, an easy question. Oh, <laughs> finally gave me the easiest question of the night. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, Paul lays out um, the way that it should be done properly. But my confusion about, about tongues, well, first of all, let me say, I totally get what happened in Acts on the day of Pentecost, why it was done so that all these foreigners heard. But I do not understand what he's talking about in chapter 14. Because first of all, if people are speaking in tongues, why would they get up and speak in a language that other people in the room don't understand? If they understood the language, why can't they interpret it? And if somebody gets up to speak in tongues, why would... Um, how would I know, if I'm sitting there, that what that person is saying is the interpretation of what the person said in tongues? Yet Paul gives them, I mean, tells them how to go about doing it and says that he himself does it. I don't get it. You have actually asked a very, very good question, and there are very able interpreters who say, they contend for the very question that you're asking, that the tongues of Acts chapter 2 is not the same as the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14. That there's some kind of substantive difference between those two. And some very good interpreters take that view. I don't happen to be one of those for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I think before we even talk about tongues, and by the way, the word tongues, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an unfortunate translation because it sounds weird to our ears because we think of this instrument here in our mouth, right, as over against language. And sometimes even outsiders, non-Christians, when they hear us talking about tongues, it's strange to them. You know, just before the service, I was joking around with Tim. I have this 
habit sometimes that I play around with people by wiggling my ears. And so I was wiggling my ears, and he wasn't really totally focused in on me until he saw my ears wiggling, and then he started laughing. And I said, Tim, that's my spiritual gift. <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, tongues. And he said, yeah. Well, I said, ears. It's my spiritual gift. People don't understand that the word glossolalia, which is the, the, the Greek word that is translated here, tongues, glossolalia, it's almost like one of those anamana uh, poetic words, right? Or poetic words. It sounds a lot like it's pronounced, right? Or it's this idea of, of a kind of a glossolalia. Even that sounds like some kind of language or some kind of tongue. The, the, the word should probably be translated language or languages. Now, I think that very much better fits the Acts model because, as you said, there are languages being spoken, I mean, actual languages, and those languages are being understood by those who were miraculously hearing their, the gospel in their own language by people who had never learned those languages before. And they were miraculously speaking in a language that, that a Persian could understand because it was the language of Persia. Okay. Now, in this 1 Corinthians 14, if you're there, it seems different. Because Paul is talking not just about tongues, but he's talking about prophecy. And those were two different gifts that were extant in the New Testament of the first century. He says, verse 1 of chapter 14, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a language speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a language builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in languages, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in languages, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, he goes on, of course, the rest of that chapter to talk about that. The first thing we can see in chapter 14 is that Paul is contrasting two different spiritual ministries. Prophecies and languages. And he clearly is making the point that prophecies are better than languages. Notice what he says. The one who speaks in a language, verse 4, builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. See, Paul was all about building up the church, not about someone having a, a spiritual experience that only built himself up, singularly. So he's trying to curb the excesses in Corinth because they had all of these opportunities in abundance. And he's saying, what you've done is you've taken the language miracle and you've begun to edify only yourself and you haven't built up the church. 
And in order for the church to be built up best, prophecies are better. Question. So you're saying that the use of the word tongues here is really language? Yes. That is my interpretation. Over against some of those who say it's a different kind of tongues, not like Acts 2. I would see them as the same, not different. And I would see Paul actually chastising the Corinthians for using these languages to only build themselves up and apparently to do it privately. And he's saying the church is built up best by prophesying. Now someone's going to say, what about prophesying? Does that just mean by the teaching of the Word of God as over against these ecstatic experiences with languages? I don't think so. Some interpret it that way. I don't think so. I think what he means by prophecies there are actual words that were coming in a revelatory way from God through prophets to instruct the church. The reason why I say that is because, remember this, in the context of 1 Corinthians, like so many of these New Testament letters, the full, complete canon of Scripture had not yet closed. Paul hadn't even written 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus yet, right? Those are in the, being in the process of being written. They're in the process of being disseminated to churches. But the full and complete New Testament is not yet here. So whenever you read in your Bibles, like go over to chapter 12. Go over to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he mentions in verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. It's a very important phrase because they were first both in time and first in importance. Second prophets, third teachers, And then notice this, he goes from persons to ministry opportunities, then miracles, then gifts of healing, and then what seem like very ordinary ministries, helping, administrating, and then he throws in another miraculous uh, ministry opportunity and various kinds of languages. Now what's he doing here? What's he talking about? Then he says, verse 29, are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with languages, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what are those higher gifts? Well, he's just about to articulate that, and the highest of all is love. And the entirety of chapter 13 is about that, right? In other words, you could be doing all of these miraculous things or you could be doing all of the lesser things like helping and administration and serving. And if you don't have love with either of those, it means nothing. So it appears as though the Corinthians were involved in the showy ministries and weren't very loving when they were doing it and they were also causing division among each other. And the whole of 1 Corinthians is talking about all kinds of division that they were causing, even bringing each other to lawsuits, 1 Corinthians 6, right? Immorality, 1 Corinthians 7. So, what's Paul saying? I think what he's saying about prophecy is this. The New Testament had not been fully written. So when Paul comes to town or somebody else who's a true apostle or, and, and the signs of an apostle, according to 2 Corinthians 12, are all of these miraculous signs and any other New Testament prophets who are coming along to instruct the church, to tell the church how to grow, how to police themselves, how to be obedient to God, because they didn't have what you and I have, and that is our completed Bible. 
So these prophets were coming and they were saying things like this. Thus says the Lord. Now, if you were in a worship service and if you were to hear not me, but somebody in Corinth of the first century say, thus says the Lord. That's not only just the preacher getting up. This is actually a miraculous occurrence by a prophet, by a New Testament prophet, who is actually giving further revelation to the church about how they ought to obey and please God. So, what does Paul say when he gets to chapter 14? Here's what he says. Look, if you're asking me about languages and about the gospel being spoken in certain languages and there's no interpreter, he says it's out of bounds. It's totally out of bounds. If you've got somebody who's speaking in a language that most of the people in the room are not going to understand and there's nobody there to interpret it, he says you can't do it. You absolutely can't do it. You have to have, if you have a language speaker of a different language than you and I know, then you have to have an interpreter. And to get to your question, you also have to have somebody who believes and knows like an authoritative apostle or an authoritative prophet to know if that interpretation is correct. That that language is being correctly communicated, preferably, presumably the gospel. Paul comes along and says, hey, if you're going to ask me about tongues, if you're going to ask me about these languages, I'm telling you it can confuse people. It can also, for an unbeliever who comes in, this is what he says in the latter part of chapter 14, if an unbeliever comes in and he sees that there's all of this ecstatic sets of experiences going on, including these languages, and it's clearly not a language that he understands, he's going to think you're all, what? Mad! Like you're out of control! He says, but if you come in and someone either tells you prophetically, here is a revelation from God himself, or here's an authoritative apostle like Paul saying, you must obey in this or that area, this is the word of God. He says, ah, I can understand that. And it says, if you preach the word of God, either in a revelation or in an apostolic authoritative way, then he falls on his face and he says this, Surely God is in this place. In other words, you're going to have a convert. So here's what he's saying. I think the prophecy here is a corrective against their ecstatic experiences without interpreters. And they were also trying to minister in a very private way away from the building up of the church with their language gift. And he's saying... You're being selfish with that. And he says, if you want to have a church that's built up, not just one person, not just in a closet somewhere, or with two or three, and not with all these ecstatic experiences without an interpreter, I'm going to tell you this. The thing that will trump it all is a word from God. And that word from God, whether it's prophetic by a New Testament prophet, or it's by an authoritative apostle, that is the thing that's going to build up the church. That is the thing that's going to convert unbelievers. And so you better concentrate on the exposition of the Word of God or a revelatory word from God Himself. Now, here's what's been taken away from us that we don't have that they had. The revelational part. Why? Because we have the completed canon. We don't need those revelatory words from God today. Why? Why? Because we already have it in toto. 
the canon of Scripture has been written and closed. It's been recognized. It's been validated. It's been illuminated for us through our own study. And so I don't do anything by getting up here and saying, let me give you a revelatory word from God because I don't have to and I should not because this is already complete. This is all that we need. You say, well, how did that work out in the first century? I mean, because like you said, whether it's somebody who's speaking in a language and maybe there's not an interpreter there and maybe that person wants a showing, you know, for what is perceived to be his gift or his ability or someone comes in and he says, hey, I'm a New Testament prophet and here's a revelatory word from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And someone's saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. That seems to be either contradictory or that seems to be strange as teaching. I don't, I don't know if that's from the Lord. That's why he says that all the prophets are subject, all the revelations of the prophets are subject to the prophets, the true prophets, who are going to help determine if that's true. And turn your Bibles over to 1 Thessalonians, and I'll show you what they did in the early church. I'll show you exactly what they did. Here's what Paul said when he, when he wrote the Thessalonian epistles, and those are, those are early on. Those are early on in terms of the writing of the New Testament. These aren't late writings. This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, verse 16, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 19, now remember, canon of Scripture hasn't been closed yet. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain, abstain from every form or every kind of evil. Now, I've heard Christians today, 21st century, they've got the completed Word of God, they've got the completed canon, and they go to a verse like that and say, see, the New Testament says that we're not supposed to despise prophecies. Right? You've heard that. So, should we have somebody stand up in a church service and say, I have a prophecy for you. And they say, thus saith the Lord. And it might even be something like this, very specific. You as a church should sell this building and you should move across town because God is going to do a greater work there at such and such a street. That's very specific, right? They usually don't get that specific. But if they were, then somebody goes to 1 Thessalonians 5 and says, we're not supposed to despise that. That's what it says right there. Well, think about it. The New Testament canon has closed for us. The New Testament canon wasn't closed when that was written. So if someone did come up front and they did say, here is a prophecy, thus says the Lord, and other prophets were in their midst, or an apostle, or those closely associated with the apostles, or their pastor teachers, and they knew that that prophecy was against something else that the Word of God had said, what are they going to say? That's not true. That's not true. That's why it says, test everything, hold fast to what is good. That's a true prophecy. It will come to pass. If it's not true or if it's contradictory 
to other portions of what Paul had already written or other Bible writers, then they would say, that's not a true prophecy. We should not believe that. You are not giving us the right and true prophetic word of God. That's why that's in the Bible. That's what was happening in Thessalonica. People were coming and saying, thus saith the Lord. Right? They had visitors all the time. Remember in uh, 2 John and 3 John, uh, you'd have those who would come by and they didn't have hotels, right? So they would come by and they say, I'm a man of God. I'm a spokesman for the Lord. Uh, let me stay uh, for a few days and let me give a word to the congregation. So they might do that, but they'd have to check them out. They'd have to say, are you truly a man of God? Tell us what you believe. Give us a prophecy. And then they would determine those things on the basis of what this says. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast or cling to what is good. Abstain from every kind of evil. So if there was someone who came along and they did something that was against what the Word of God said, they would dismiss him and say, you're a false prophet. We don't even want to give you any coverage. We don't want to give you even any lodging. Be away from us. Go. Right? That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and following is in our Bible. And it's because, like 1 Thessalonians, like 1 Corinthians, when it says tongues and prophecies and miracles and healings and interpretations and all of those, and people read their Bibles and they say, but it's in 1 Corinthians. It's in 1 Thessalonians. It's here And all of it is directly for us today. And what you're saying has an uncertain and strange sound to us because this is in the Bible. Well, what you have to do is you go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and when it says, first apostles, ask this question, are there apostles today? That's a good deducement. You know why? Because they were first. First in church history. There are no longer any apostles today. Prophets. There were prophets in the first century. There are no prophets today. Why? Because we don't need them because we have the sure Word of God. You see? I believe there are potentially miracles occurring today, but not through a miracle-working healer. They had Paul in those days, and the book of Acts even says that there were times where Paul would heal somebody by someone touching his handkerchief or standing in his shadow. Now, that's what I would call power. That's tremendous power. I don't possess such power. I can't do that. I I simply cannot go into a hospital and assume that if I touch somebody, they will be instantly healed. Now, do I pray for someone that God would heal them? Of course. And if God providentially desires to do so, it's not because I touched them. It's not because I have the gift of healing. It's not because I have some kind of supernatural power like the apostles. No, the apostles were imbued with supernatural power for the attestation that they were apostles directly from God prophecies are given because prophets in the New Testament were prophesying because the New Testament hadn't closed in its entirety. And so God was still using them. But as soon as they passed off the scene, then all of those gifts passed off the scene because they were no longer necessary 
for the upbuilding of the church. Um, and we'll let this be sort of the end well, because... Kind of, kind of piggybacks on, on your, your question and also your answer from First uh, Corinthians 12. Yes. Which, which I think was great. But it does beg a question from First Corinthians 13. Yes. And that says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And there's a debate over what the yes. perfect is. Yes. If, it's, if it's the completion of the canon, or if it's the coming of Jesus Christ. Which, if it's the coming of Jesus Christ, I think that's problematic given your answer for what prophecy is. So I'm curious where you land on, on what is the perfect. Well, I think in 1 Corinthians 13, since love predominates the chapter, whatever the perfect is in terms of a, a, of an, a correct interpretation, it has to be tied to love. It's not going to be tied to the second coming of Christ. It's not going to be tied to uh, the full maturity of uh, of of the church. It's not going to be tied to uh, other things other than what his point is in the chapter, and his point in the chapter is love. Now, if someone says these will cease, like Paul says there, and he says that those things will cease because they will become uh, unnecessary, then it actually interprets my own view fairly well, not without its challenges, but fairly well, because I'm saying that in the love of the church, prophecy, and even languages are to serve its purpose for a time. And when the completed canon of Scripture, which might be a good interpretation of that, the partial, then the completed canon might be a good answer. You say, is that your interpretation? You know, I've never preached through 1 Corinthians. So, it's a good answer. It's probably my best answer for now. But if I were to study it, I might come up with a different answer. But I would say this. I would say that for everybody who really chokes on the question, are you playing fast and loose with Scripture because there are certain verses that you say were applicable then but not now, I would say you have to look at the difference between what we say is salvation history. Now that's a, that's a kind of phrase that, that sounds like maybe I'm playing fast and loose, but it's not intended to be. The word salvation history means this. There were certain things that happened even in the Old Testament era that doesn't happen now. There are certain things that happen in the book of Acts that don't happen now. There are certain things that happened when Paul was penning the New Testament that don't happen now because the penning of the New Testament has ceased. So whether or not it's the completed canon or whether or not it's love being partial which needs to be fully mature, which is what many people think that means, therefore, if love is to continue to mature, those things won't cease until that love is fully mature. Even if that were the case, I'd still have a problem because apostles aren't here today and it's a cascading argument. If apostles aren't here today, then the signs of an apostle, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, are not here today. 
And if those signs are not here today, then some of the signs in those lists are not here today. Do you see the cascading argument? No apostles, no sign gifts. No sign gifts, only other gifts. Well, you say, but they're all in the same grouping that Paul gives it. Well, he's giving it to us in salvation historical time. He was in the process of writing. That writing hadn't yet been finished. He hadn't uh, written 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. There's no mention in the book of Acts about New Testament elders, right? No mention of New Testament elders, only apostles. So does that mean that we should do away with the term elders and only have apostles in the church because the apostles were prominently mentioned in the book of Acts? Well, no, because we have further revelation. And in fact, when you have further revelation about elders in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus and other places, 1 Peter 5, then you begin to see the apostles receding into the background. Why? Because they died off the scene, with the last one being the apostle John on the island of Patmos. They were foundation-laying offices. And when those foundation-laying officers died off the scene, the foundation was built. And when the foundation was built, we don't need apostles today. Do you know that there's a movement right now within the greater charismatic movement called the New Apostolic Reformation? Anybody heard of that? New Apostolic Reformation? They are actually attempting to install new apostles in the church today with the full authority of apostles in that first century sense. And my difficulty with that is that it seems though as though the vast bulk of New Testament theology lets us know that apostles have moved off the scene. And if they've moved off the scene, and if they haven't even been a part of the church for almost 2,000 years, I don't suppose they're coming back anytime soon. Right? And if that's the case, then the cascading argument ties the signs of those apostles as also having ceased. And then you start going with other New Testament revelation about what the church is to be. And guess what? When you get into the general epistles, and as you move forward in the canon, you find out that some of those showy gifts are not prominently affixed at all. In fact, most of them are not even mentioned. That's another cascading argument. So that by the time you are finished with the whole of the New Testament in terms of not only your study and reading, but when they were penned and the closing of the canon, you find out that this book becomes the gold standard for what we do and not for persons except for one office, and that's the office of pastor-teacher, and that's Ephesians 4, and in the salvation history of the church, you have the apostles dying off, the prophets dying off, you have evangelists, and then these pastor-teachers. Well, guess what? If the apostles were first and this was second, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 4, you have first and second. Ephesians 2.20, they were the foundation-laying apostles, foundation-laying prophets, And then you come to this last designation, pastor-teachers, and you have what appears to be a continuing office in the church because pastor is an interchangeable term with elder. And so it appears as though you have those two offices, elder and deacon, and within the eldership are pastor-teachers, and they're the ones 
who are tasked by God in salvation history to make sure that this is clear and relevant and taught every Sunday of our lives. Right? I think that's a good, solid set of arguments that helps to answer your question. doesn't answer it completely. There are other passages and other things to say. But I think, Andrea, in the, in the main, those particular thorny passages in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 give us a sense of what was happening then, and we have in many ways a different set of circumstances now. And that's, that's the way I would interpret it, okay? Man, you guys have been great. Let's stand together. Tim, I think we'll forego our song. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for these dear people who have sat for a long time listening to questions and answers. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you for those who might have wanted to ask a question but didn't get it in in the time frame. Lord, if we do this again, let us all be exactly what Acts 17.11 says about the Bereans of old. It says they were noble because they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And we pray that we would all be like those noble Bereans examining the Scriptures daily in order to show ourselves approved unto you as workmen who never need to be ashamed because we're trying to accurately interpret the truth. We love you. We thank you for our time. May we have wonderful and sweet fellowship now. In Jesus' name, amen.